0: Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. Today is a throwback episode to a few years ago when we talked to Kate Leeming, about cycling Namibia's skeleton coast. And I was recently inspired to revisit this episode because I, I, I just listened to a, a podcast about this area of the world in Namibia. And it was on, I believe it was on Everything Everywhere Daily hosted by Gary Arndt. It's a daily podcast just about some one specific topic and it's like 15 minutes long. It's one of my favorite podcasts. This is a genuine recommendation. Gary has been on this show, we've interviewed him. I love his podcast. I actually support it monthly. I'm a huge fan. I listen to every single episode that comes out every single day. It's like part of my daily routine. And he talked about this area. And I was like, you know what? We had Kate on the show, and she has bicycled the length of Namibia's coast, basically. And it was unbelievable. It's sand dunes that go right into the desert. And it's the only place, I believe, in the world that lions hunt marine life they hunt seals and so there's this area where lions have evolved to know how to hunt seals it's amazing and it lives up to its name skeleton coasters like whale skeletons on shore and old shipwrecks that just are there in the sand that have fluent coastline that moves around because as you know sand dunes tend to move around with the wind over time and it's an amazing place and i'd love to go and i thought this was such a cool episode that we're shouting it out again and gonna gonna play it and kate has been on the show a couple times because she's biked i think she rode a fat tire bike to the south pole she's done all kinds of amazing things and eventually has Aspirations to to go into space and do adventures in space. So a true adventurer, awesome guest, and uh, yeah, let's go ahead and dive in. Just want to welcome you, Kate Leeming. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Mason. Nice to be with you. I guess. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I know we were talking a little bit before. But this is always my very first question. Where are you coming from today and, and where's home for you?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm living in Melbourne, uh, originally from near Perth, a farm near Perth in Western Australia. But I, I live in Melbourne now. So, um, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, you know, it, it's coming into winter and it's sort of rainy and a bit gray outside, but um, that's where I am.
0: Is, is that a typical winter in Australia, gray and rainy?
1: Australia's about the same size as the US so you get a bit of everything depending where you are like it, it's very interchangeable in Melbourne the, the weather so it's kind of that it's actually quite famous for being sort of sunshine and rain all in one day so a
0: lot of places like that in the US as well but yeah you're right it's it's almost scary how identical in size they are and, and yeah. just how much it varies But I'd love to hear, where where did you grow up? You said you were from Perth. Did you you grow up for a a while in that area? And what what kind of things did you do as a kid? Were you you into adventure or did you find it later in life?
1: Yeah, no, I was, um, so I grew up on a farm which is about um, 85 miles uh, east of Perth. And um, so it's like the nearest neighbor's uh, five, so three and a half kilometers away, three and a half miles away. I mean, converting to miles for you. Um and uh, so uh, you know it was a wheat and sheep farm and I uh was a very good all-round sports person, which is kind of where some of my um attitude probably comes from. But I didn't really get into didn't really have the confidence growing up to do that kind of thing. I was just it was all about competition in, 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 in you know, I think I represented my state in four different sports. Um so uh it was only when I actually went to travel and went to Europe originally playing field hockey. And after that, that was my opportunity to see the world. And I'd been sort of into cycling, you know, just to, for you know as a way of keeping fit uh, uh, in Australia. And then when I went over there, I just really, you know, I'd already dreamed of cycling in Italy or France, and thought that would be amazing. Uh, and then after the hockey tour, I I organised a little trip in Ireland with a friend. And then and then after that, it sort of it grew from there. Really, that's where the seeds were sown. I did a um, total about 15,000 kilometers, so 9,000 miles through Europe over the next couple of years, just as my personal discovery. And that's really where I learned about um, cycling and and really discovered my passion and what I could do as well. And so sort of, you know, little trips led to bigger trips, um, more ambitious, and, you know, I guess the passion is really about, you know, I love the way that how connected you are with the people and the land. And I love bringing a line on a map to life and I really, you know, cycling I think particularly or walking could do the same thing but gives a great sense of place and a perspective of how the world fits together. And, you know, I just love getting to places under my own steam. I can remember everything, all the photographs, all the stories. It just means so much more. So that that's how I kind of got into it, I guess. Um, that was, I hate to say it, but that was 30 years ago. <laughs> so... <laughs>
0: So, so tell me this: what was what was the world of bike touring like? Were there were there a lot of people doing it, or were you constantly having to explain to people what it is you're doing?
1: Uh, well, in Europe, it's probably the best place to start because, especially in many of those countries, cycling is just such an important part of their culture. Especially in France and Italy and Spain, it's just awesome. And so, people, you know, the friendliness of people. People are kind and it's a very safe way of travelling too. Um, you know, people really respect you, give you food, all too, you know, happy to give directions or, you know, help out. It's just part of the culture, whereas other places it's less part of the culture. Um, so, you know, you stand out a little bit more. But but pretty well everywhere it just, it just draws kindness and, and friendliness and people are just – And it's kind of quite a humble way of, of travelling and I think people are very – always amazed at the effort you're going to see their part of the world they want to really show you so that that, that's kind of what i i get out of it plus you know you get pretty fit and you can eat a lot and europe's pretty good for that as
0: well (laughs) Right, lots of good food in europe um i guess that's i guess they need the bike paths for uh, just to keep, just, just to stay in shape, but that's really cool. Now, now I think you're glossing over an pretty incredible experience, pretty big experience um, back when you were in the early days of doing this, which is the Trans Siberian Cycle Expedition. Am I mistaken that that was probably that's one impressive. of your biggest first experiences?
1: Yeah. So I guess I'm known for um, sort of three very big expeditions, but the first main one. Was the Trans-Siberian Cycle Expedition? So this was back in 1993 when Russia was changing it from the from the Soviet Union to the CIS, and it was just possible to cycle. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I designed this expedition from St. Petersburg to Vladivostok. There's a road actually going through that that sort of the swamp area in eastern Siberia now, but then there wasn't. We had to follow the Trans-Siberian railway line myself and my Uh, friend Greg Yeoman and then we always had a Russian with us as well so we were pushing that was our route through so uh, pushing along the railway line when it went underwater when the or like when there were rivers or when it was swampy and everything went underwater so pushing along the railway line and that was our way to navigate and there were little winter tracks along the side um, that were quite usable for most of the time or forestry tracks and then there were little villages that all the villages were along the railway line every you know, 30, 40 kilometres, so, um, and it's a bit safer because there's bears out there, so, but not not really so much along, along the railway line because that's not safe for bears either, so so this was, yeah, that was back, yeah, it was just such an incredible snapshot in time because, um, you know, growing up, you know, it was the Soviet Union and it was this place that, you know, we were fed all sorts of information as they were about us and yet, you know, there were such almost embarrassingly friendly people, just you know, just would give you whatever they had, really supportive, loved the idea of cycling. But in communist times, we would have been heroes uh, in each town and treated as such by the mayor. So we used to stop, find the town leader, they would look after us and then we'd, we'd get to the next <clears throat> place, you know, 100, 130, 140, 50 kilometres down the road and it would be the same thing again. Um, so it was just just a magical experience to cycle, especially – across Siberia that was four months of it through Siberia and um, yeah just just seeing this incredible largest country in the world and I guess that all you know that changed my confidence changed between Europe traveling through Europe for myself and um, the Russian expedition because I met a, a fellow who really inspired me a guy called Robert Swan who's the first person in history to have walked to both the North and South Poles and and I explained what I was thinking of doing and he just gave me a lot of confidence and and that's how I kind of stepped it up. And everything I've done since um, Europe, so Russia was the first one, was about um, supporting the people and places that I traveled to as well. There's, I realized there's much more of a uh, value to what I was doing than just simply riding a bike. So the Russian expedition was, um, I also aided children affected by the Chernobyl disaster, which had only happened like seven years before that. So um now we're thinking, you know, it was a long time ago, which it is now, but it's still then it was it was in the forefront of people's minds, even more even more. So so that was the first big one and it was um 13, uh thirteen thousand four hundred kilometers or I think eight thousand three hundred and four miles or something like that. Um and we got there basically ahead of the Russian winter. It was done during the summer from the first of May and got there. Uh, a day ahead of schedule after five months so it was a um, yeah it was it was something that can't really be replicated not in that time especially um, so yeah so that was the trans-siberian um, then I didn't do any adventuring for 10 years because I discovered the game of real tennis or in the US it's called court tennis which is the original game of tennis I was working in a, in a health club in London I discovered this game and uh, after two years, I got pretty good at it. Became a professional, and so I was really—that uh, was my next adventure. Really, it wasn't out there. It was—it was a different thing. I was pushing myself as a sports person, as a professional sports person, and I still—that's still the other thing that I do. Um, but now I'm not really competing in the same way. I'm more coaching and 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 doing all the uh, very specific things that a real tennis professional does. So that game is played in. Uh, basically, in four countries in the world—in in the U.S., in Australia, the U.K., and France. Um, in France, it's called the jeu de Pomme. and uh, it's it's a it's a very magical little world. There's about 12,000 people in the world who play. So that's what I'm doing uh, when I'm not writing. <laughs> um, so, uh, but then when I came back to Australia, I really wanted to see how my own country matched up. I, I sort of. So I once I was ready, I was working as a professional here in Melbourne. That's why I came to Melbourne. But then I organized the Great Australian Cycle Expedition. So I'd seen lots of other parts of the world, but I wanted to see how my own country matched up. And this was um, 25,000 kilometers, so in miles 17. Oh 17 miles. So you think mainland uh, – Australia is about the same size as mainland U.S. if you take Alaska out. Um, and – if, if you go around the edge of Australia, it's about – I'm going to speak in Ks now because I can't convert to all the time. Um,
0: no, yeah, our, our listeners are used to it, so you, you feel free to stick to what you're most comfortable with.
1: All right. So so if you go around the edge of Australia, it's about uh, 14,000 if you stay, uh, stay on highway number one. But 25,000 kilometers involved um, five major – off road tracks in remote de- uh, desert areas, including the, the Cape York Peninsula, up to the very far north, across the Gulf Track, uh, the, through the Tanami Desert, um, across the Great Central and Gun Barrel Highway. And then the big thing was up the Canning Stock Route. And the Canning Stock Route is like the world's old, uh, longest stock route. It's about 1,800 kilometres long and there's about 1,000 sand dunes. Um, and this is on a regular mountain bike. Anyone since me, who's done it, they do it now using a fat bike, which kind of changes the game. um And if if, if I had a fat bike, I would have been doing it on a fat bike then. <laughs> uh, but uh it was just, yeah, it was almost. It's a very spiritual place for me. Just, just you know, the develop development of this of the stock route and what it stood for, and the pioneers that that built it um including one of my great great uncles who reconditioned it in 1929 so it was kind of like um yeah just just the canning stock route but also the whole of the journey was really just understanding how my own country fits together and you know it was quite incredible having done like seven over 17,000 kilometers and cycling into the back gate of my home farm having cycled all the way from Canberra at that point you know um and connecting it all up so that was very special uh I wrote a book about that called Out There and Back, Mm -hmm. and that was my first book. So this was changing things as well. This expedition was about looking at education for sustainable development, and it was picked up by the United Nations actually as one of the first projects uh, for their decade of education for sustainable development. And um, so now I was adding a different purpose to what I was doing, Um, and and then – that book also led to speaking, so new opportunities. So each time I've been doing these major expeditions, I'm kind of stepping it up with the other things that I do around it to really create more value out of it. And, and you sort of realise it's great to be able to do do adventures, but to be able to share those adventures and to be able to inspire others um, and, and to be able to, you know, that's just as important and as, as, as very important for my motivation as well. From there, I would always been fascinated by Africa and I was really sort of wanting to cycle there but didn't really have the confidence mainly because people had always said oh Africa you know you'll die it's dangerous it's this that but I knew other people cycled there so I now sort of was sort of ready to step it up and I was looking at Africa thinking what would be the best expedition I could do and because I'm, I'm also an educator I'm a qualified teacher and I was looking at the importance of education across Africa and I was looking at a map showing illiteracy and you can see this band of countries sort of running across the base of the Sahara through the Sahel region uh, from west to east. And that's how I started this idea of cycling from the most westerly tip to the most easterly tip from Senegal to Somalia. Um, and then I looked at the reasons why there were problems with education. It was really it was all related to extreme poverty. So that, that, that journey became actually exploring the causes and effects of extreme poverty, but the, the positives and what's been done to give a leg up rather than a handout. So basically I went through 20 countries. I didn't go exactly straight across because I was trying to tell the story. That my route actually reflects the story I was, I was telling. I was, I was hooking up with different uh, projects. I think I visited 15 different projects during the journey as well. So I had to time everything to, to make all of this work. Um, It was 22,000 kilometres, 22,040 kilometres in a continuous line, which we believe is the first time anyone's done that whole journey in a continuous line from the most westerly tip in Senegal to the most easterly tip, which is in Puntland in Somalia. Um, And, you know, it, it was amazing. You know, I arrived there four days ahead of schedule after 10 months and it's probably the most life-changing expedition, I'd say, of all of them. Uh, it was, Why
0: is that? Why was that one so, so impactful?
1: Because to cross the most diverse continent on Earth, to, to see so many different cultures, to, there's so much that people don't know. And, and to try to, traveling by bike really enabled me to put it into a, a different context, this very grounded context and perspective and sort of coming in always the level of the people. Because I'd seen, you know, I also was visiting different projects, so people could actually, it wasn't just cycling past, I was stopping and, and people were there to to explain what the situation was. Often there were little little projects, some were bigger, you know, some of it was a little bit, you know, it's heartbreaking at times, but um, there was just so many strong characters and yeah, so much range. Um, logistically, that was a very tough to organise. That one was my first supported expedition um, because I was wanting to make a film about it, uh, and I realised that I couldn't film it myself, not not with all the different things that I needed to do and, and, and all the interactions and things. So so that became logistically very tricky because the, suddenly there's a support vehicle and, and that opens another can of worms, <laughs> whereas before I was cycling basically – on my own or with with a friend so this was quite different again and, and a different way that it's done um so yeah for lots of reasons it was it was just incredible and i wrote a book and made a film about it and we're still looking to finish off a tv series about that one as well i can't let it go i, I had a filmmaker in um in ireland and, and he's just never finished it off and I'm kind of at a stalemate, but I've got someone else very keen to now make the series. And if you take the dates out, because it's a little bit old, but it, it's it's just, it's really relevant still. And it's a re- great story of adventure.
0: That's interesting because, you know, for, for a lot of folks, a lot of people we talk to, it, it feels like the one that really sticks out to them is, is their first big adventure because there's so many feelings that you've experienced for the first time. And um, it's usually not you know, the adventures that have a film crew. So to hear you say that was the one that, that changed you the most or that was the most impactful is, is very interesting, very interesting to hear.
1: Well, it's, they're different and they're all great. And each one, like often people say, what's what's your favorite adventure? I always just say the last one because, because <laughs> like, like I can't have thought of that last one without all of the other experiences before that. So it's like I'm growing from from Europe And then, you know, stepping up, the Russian one, I mean, it was really special. It was amazing. And, you know, in fact, cars, you couldn't be done supported because cars couldn't get through where we're getting through this that 1,500 kilometres of swamp. Cars couldn't get through there. Um, So only bicycles, in fact, not even motorbikes could get through there in the summer. So that was really special for lots of other reasons. But I think that the difference with the African one was also being supported made it different because... Although I did everything in a continuous line, if I needed to go off somewhere and, um, to see something and it was, you know, 200 kilometres off off the route, I could still do that and then come back and start the line. So it gave a bit more flexibility, um, and it didn't mean I worked any less. It's actually it was actually more difficult to put together being supported than unsupported, and it cost about four times as much. <laughs> so, so to make it happen was. far the hardest thing Um, it was a much bigger budget over that period of time so to make it happen was very difficult and then the hardest thing about the journey was actually managing the team (laughs) it wasn't Africa (laughs) Um, uh, so you know I'm out there on a bike yet I have to manage a team and I had to learn quite a bit about that as well Uh, not everyone was always the right people for the job but it was very difficult when we're under very different circumstances so I mean, all of that was a learning process, how to get that story out that's meaningful to other people. And and I guess I was able to get a little bit deeper because, we were, you know, I was visiting all these different projects as well. So it, it, it changed that side of it. And one's not better than the other. It just depends what you're trying to do with whether it's uh, supported or unsupported. It, it just depends what I'm trying to do with the expedition. I, you know, still, you know, Done more recently. I've done both, mostly mostly because I'm trying to film it. It's been supported, but um, as I said, that that requires different things. And supported doesn't necessarily mean I've got a car sitting next to me all the time either. They're often off doing other things, and I'm riding alone. So you know, and I don't, and I usually ride with extra bags on my bike, so I'm equipped that if we do get separated, uh, I can still manage okay. Um, so that, that's, it's, it's different if, if people think of you differently, whether you've got a, a, bike packed with bags or not as well. Um, and certainly there's, they treat you with more intrigue when you've got a bike loaded with bags. <laughs> um, so, you know, just making sure that I'm carrying my cameras and my sleeping bag and food and water and that kind of thing. It's kind of, yeah, it means you're not 100% dependent on the support crew.
0: Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that helped make this show possible. I know on this show we don't always talk about gear, but good versus bad gear can make or break an adventure experience. And I find the best gear is the gear that I don't even think about on the adventure. And what I mean is that the gear doesn't get in the way. It's not uncomfortable. It's not low quality. And it also doesn't have tons of distracting bells and whistles. It's what I need, and it's going to hold up. And that's why I'm a huge fan of Outdoor Vitals. They create ultralight performance gear the right way. It's built by outdoor enthusiasts for outdoor enthusiasts. It is absolutely not designed and made by people with suit and ties in a corporate office somewhere. I know the folks personally at Outdoor Vitals. I'm actually wearing one of their shirts right now. And what I've found as I get better and better and more experience in the outdoors is I'm willing to pay for quality because a lot of times you only pay for it once because it lasts forever. And that's what I'm finding with outdoor vitals. I own around half a dozen pieces of gear from them and I wear it out and it is still holding up. And there's all these little things that they've thought through, like with their sleeping bag, there's a zipper right in the middle and I find it so much more comfortable to zip my sleeping bag up right there. And there's all these tiny little improvements they've made without it being you know, useless distractions or just the latest thing that doesn't really actually help. So I know when I need a piece of gear and I don't wanna do all the crazy research into what's best, I know that the folks at Outdoor Vitals have thought through it all. And if you wanna check out some of their new innovations and the great gear they have, go to OutdoorVitals.com. Again, that's OutdoorVitals, dot scom Tell them Mason at Adventure Sports Podcast sent you. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. You 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 just you just wrapped up a lot of experiences, a lot of miles, <laughs> yeah. and many many years of, of planning and cycling of your life. All of those trips are worthy of one or two or multiple episodes of this show. Um, which makes it difficult to interview somebody like you because it's like, oh, my gosh, where do you even begin? The amount of things you've seen and experienced, uh, so incredible. How how have you been able to do this with your lifestyle, take off this much time? I think people are always interested in that part just because they they don't know where to start in their own lives.
1: Well, all of the ones that I've explained so far have been job ending (laughs) so because they're that big. Um, yeah. so, you know, I've, I've, had to leave my work twice at the Royal Melbourne tennis club because for the Australian one and then the African one, but now I've, I've got a different situation. So, um, if I, because I'm, most of my journeys have been a bit shorter, um, but if I explain, I'm actually, my next real serious goal is to cycle across Antarctica via the South Pole Um, So ever since the African expedition or since I wrote a book and so on and so forth, after that, I've been working towards this idea. And first, you know, back in 2013, I was just trying to work out, A, whether it's possible, what kind of bike I needed. I have no experience of the extreme cold. I'm good at the extreme heat but not the extreme cold. So I needed to – so I got a team of experienced um, people, Australia's best polar explorer, uh, Eric Phillips, a, a fantastic adventure cameraman, a, a filmmaker, Claudio von Planto, If you ever think of Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman's motorbike journeys, long way around, long way down, now long way up. Um, he's the director of photography on those. Oh, wow. Uh, that's what people know him from. But I connected with him before the African journey, and then I thought, oh, I'll just ask him, see if he'd be interested in or know if someone who could maybe start filming um, the Antarctic Uh, expedition and he said I'd like to do that so okay (laughs) so 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 um Claudia and I remained friends and he's he's uh actually come out on three of my polar training expeditions filming them um so and another chap also a a, a photographer filmmaker so we went up to Svalbard and the bike itself you might find pretty interesting it's I was trying to think okay yes you need a fat bike Anyone who's done this canning stock route or since me he's used a fat bike, I thought, okay, so you need a fat bike for the snow because you need the, the fatter tyres to, to create uh, sort of float over the snow as much as possible. But then I discovered – I went to North America um, and I, because obviously you deal much more with those kind of conditions, the snow and the cold, because I was a bit nervous about doing that in Australia. Um, so to cut a very long story short, I ended up connecting with a guy in Philadelphia, Steve Christini who'd made um, an all-wheel drive mountain bike. And it's basically, it was the only system that looked to be um, robust enough for the kind of conditions I was going to put it under. Uh, and it's a shaft drive system. It's quite un, quite like it's it's not external chains or anything. It's, it's actually built into the frame and it sort of starts with a, a, a gear opposite the drivetrain at the back on the rear hub. And, and basically turns a rod that drives through the the frame basically up, essentially up um, the seat stay uh, across the top tube, crosses over the, at, at the head tube and then sort of runs, drives a rod that runs parallel to the front wheel to drive the cog. That
0: makes sense. <laughs> I'm actually looking at a picture and I'm following uh, along while you're talking. And yeah, that's, yeah. that's interesting. Very interesting.
1: Yeah. And, and a, th- it seemed and it's really like it's an amazing piece of engineering because it, you think that would be difficult to push, but it's not, and it really is truly all-wheel drive. So in other words, it, it only the front wheel only engages when the back wheel slips. So it's got applications for everything from going over soft surfaces to going downhill, cornering, for example. Not that I'm a downhiller, um, but. Um, I just thought that this might be really worth a try. So um, I managed to connect with him because he's mostly been making um, motorbikes, like for the U.S. Navy SEALs and things, these incredible all-wheel drive motorbikes. But he has a passion for bicycles. And uh, he made me the first prototype, which I took to Svalbard with my team, and we tested it. And it wasn't perfect, but we thought, uh, thought mm, this has got a lot of potential. Um there were different reasons why that, how that, and how that could be improved. So then, um, uh, so then, it took me a while to get to the next training session, which was in Northeast Greenland. Um, um, and he made basically fat bike number two for that, which had better, wider tires. Um, and so, I mean, that's the first bike that's ever cycled in Northeast Greenland, um, and that was an amazing little practice. Um, but it was not really cold enough uh, it was melting a bit soon so it wasn't particularly cold uh, but it was still all learning uh, for me it has virtually no experience in extreme cold uh, the third one was up in um, arctic canada up in the yukon um up around the um mouth of the Mackenzie river up there right up and over the, the beaufort sea that was incredible as well up in canada so Um, That was fat bike number three (laughs) and fat bike number four was trialed in uh, Iceland. So each time he's been improving it, the technology's got better and better. And and so fat bike number two now I also used as my sand cycling bike because cycling on sand is very similar to cycling in snow. So my journey on this sort of journey towards Antarctica is kind of the hardest thing about it is finding the funding to, to do a crossing because it's, it's a long distance. It has to be supported. You cannot, nobody, it's not feasible to carry all of your um, uh, equipment. So the expeditions that I've been doing, so I, ha- I actually have done one on each continent, but the yeah. one that we were going to talk about the most was the one in on the African continent, which is in Namibia, where I actually made the first bicycle Uh, crossing of Namibia's entire coastline so from the mouth of the Kunene River which is on the Angolan border all the way to the mouth of the Orange River which is on the South African border it's called the Skeleton Coast um, aptly named Uh, it's probably one of the most inhospitable places on earth
0: and And, and tell us why and I hate to I hate to talk you know push out of the way all these enormous, life-changing, huge adventures to talk about one little experience in comparison that you did, but it's so interesting and so unique for this show. Um, Why did you choose that? And tell us about what it was like out there.
1: Well, I'd kind of known about the Skeleton Coast before, just through my research, and I remember there was a British explorer who'd walked it back in sort of the mid-90s, and i sort of it somehow stuck in my mind and and then i did not started doing a bit of research i mean there's no roads like when i say um, the whole skeleton coast that's like no roads that's the beach
0: um, you were just so people know biking on the beach itself
1: the beach but the beach is is it is, is like it's wild and it's really remote so um so out of the 1000 miles half of that was absolutely roadless and that includes cycling also through the Namib desert which is the oldest and one of the driest deserts in the world it's through massive sand dunes and, and those sand dunes when it hits the the Atlantic Ocean it just they just drop off you know 100 meters or more into the ocean so it's 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 unbelievably spectacular it's it's wild because it's it's the desert and you've got the South Atlantic coming in and it's got this constant uh, southwesterly, uh, I would say wind gale. <laughs> it's probably one of the windiest places there is. Most constantly windy places. Great for surfing. A couple of spots there for those who are surfing, and well, not not me. But but um, it's it's a very treacherous coastline. There are th- you know over through history thousands of shipwrecks, um, and some of them are still there. And they're all it's the most corrosive environment for metal. They're all rusting and gone and disappeared. Um, people died out there, you know, people, animals, everything, it doesn't, people, they don't survive. Um, and so I, strangely enough, chose to go from north to south for two reasons. One, I thought it would tell a better story with what I'm doing, and two, I'm choosing to go into the wind um, because I need that mindset for Antarctica and this was the best way I could do it. You know, no roads and um, into the soft conditions. Really soft conditions, quite often, um, and into this powerful gale, where it was knocking me around. I, I, sometimes I was only going walking speed. You know, it was like that. So I was just trying to work through in my mind. You know, this no roads, no markers. So it's just like no points of reference. I'm just just head down and really. It's it it seemed tough, but I was expecting I was expecting the the fight <laughs> as such, and. And to get through that and 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 it really helped me work through that you know that journey was really great mentally to 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 really test what i can do um and it was just such a privilege you know, to be able to do it uh, you know there was there's endem- lots of endemic species there's um the desert lions for example that live live in the north and they were nearly completely entirely wiped out. But uh, there's now about 130 to 150 of them. The, um, there's, they're not a different um, species, but they're sp- very specifically adapted uh, to those conditions. And um, so that area, we had l- luckily there's a the world-renowned expert in that area that whom we met sort of at the one outer limit of of, of where the lions are. And he sort of was tracking them, and sort of knew where they were. so I had to actually cycle past where there was a lioness and a cub, which was kind of like you'll have to see the film <laughs>
0: unreal like, unreal you yeah. you're cycling I mean it's all sand, dunes, sand dunes, like you said, just going right into the ocean, and there are it is literally only the only place in the world that lions actively hunt seals, mm-hmm. correct.
1: Correct. They actually. This only place lions. Actually, have known now to, to get into the water to actually hunt seals. To oh lions, gosh. cats go the water usually. Cats, you know. So these, you know, they they're just magnificent animals. So I didn't. Luckily, didn't actually get to see one face to face. But um, um, what we learnt from Philip Stander, the the expert, mm-hmm. is just just incredible. Um, Um, So there's that, and then there's these incredible shipwrecks as well. Um, Some of them is quite haunting. Some of them. There's one very famous one, the Edward Boland, which is uh, now um, about 500 meters off the beach. When it was grounded, it was 500 meters out to sea. So that the, the the beach has grown by a kilometer basically since. 1909 so it's just interesting to see how the you know the, the coastline also changes um yeah uh, uh met some incredible people not people don't really live on the coast um there there's only a couple of like port town like port towns one swockupman walvis bay luteritz and then orangum pretty much and there's another little one hentis bay and the people don't live there for good reason um Uh, it's, it's desolate, but, but when you sort of scratch under the surface, there's so much history, you know, people, diamond mining is, is, was huge. Um, the diamonds came down the orange river. So the Southern border, um, they came down from all the way down that river and then they sort of were flushed out to sea and back onto the coast. So so near the Orange River, the diamonds are at the biggest, and then up towards the Kunene River, they, they can only be like little pinhead size. Not that we actually saw any diamonds, <laughs> um, but that was another very special thing about the expedition because the last 300 kilometres of the journey is through a forbidden land called the Spurgebeet, um, which normally – they don't allow anyone through apart from those in the that particular diamond mining company you're not allowed through and we tried all different ways to um, the people that i was working with in namibia were trying to get permission and then i just managed to find a way to connect with the chief operating officer and he basically could see the value out of this expedition and uh, so he reversed the decision, so that enabled me to do the whole coastline. Um, yes, I had to go on their road just in, inland, but the coast there was rocky, so I couldn't have cycled in, it, it anyway. Um, and that spurgebiet has been, like, untouched for 110 years, um, and, and so it's, it's mostly not mining but a buffer zone. 95% of it's like a buffer zone, and now it's, it, it's, it's pristi- a very pristine landscape of which – now that diamond mining company's open, um going to be just di- uh, mining the diamonds uh, in the water, marine uh, mining, and so they're going to be opening that land up, and that was, you know, so it was just a privilege to, to be able to go through that. There were ghost towns, diamond mining ghost towns, really just <laughs> stuff you wouldn't believe. Yeah, so soon it will be open or sort of opening up slowly to, to the public, so um, yeah, that was that was a very interesting way to the last three hundred kilometers. was quite different. So I wasn't struggling over sand dunes, but there were other things that were interesting as well you know, through there. So um, yeah, other animals like brown hyenas, which are rare, saw brown hyenas. Um, yeah, lots of stuff, and, and probably you know I just loved probably the spectacular, most spectacular bit was the um, the Namib deserts. Well, it's all Namib Desert, but the sort of the high dunes. Uh, there's a 500-kilometre section south from Wolves Bay uh, to Luderitz, which it, it, that was the biggest challenge physically of the whole journey. And that's where, at the point where I actually had to go in, in so up over the dunes and then parallel to the coast, sort of a, you know, roughly about 10 kilometres in from the coast, and and just obviously having to struggle but but I kind of love love that sort of struggle that that idea this pure sand and you know it cleans everything cleans the tires it's like it, you know it, it's going through the whole day it's like you know it's like a boxing match um going up sometimes you know I, I have to drag the bike up the soft side of a dune but but then quite often you know when, when it's not being disturbed by a vehicle which is all the time there then then quite a, Often, you know, I'm reading the sand a bit like I have to read the snow in Antarctica. Um, read the sand and work out the best path, and and be ready to slip at any moment. And that's where the all-wheel drive system is pretty good too, because it, it's like sometimes you not don't know when you're going to slip, but when I do, I have the best chance of pulling the bike out. Doesn't mean I always do, but it, it, it's just a little bit better, a bit more grip. So yeah, that bike can tell a few good stories.
0: That's awesome. Can, can you can do you mind sharing a story? from that skeleton coast experience of some, something maybe unexpected that you came across
1: sharing a story Wow, oh, gosh where do we start i know um, I, I, want, I
0: want to just hear it because it, it's just like when i see videos and i see pictures it's just sand it's just sand and it's yeah. just it's intimidating the landscape is something i've never seen anything like it
1: yeah it, it is amazing so so, the the, north, the first 800 kilometers is like not high sand dunes so much. There are a few sand dunes, but basically that's just windswept and just wild, and there's no people. Um, um, so, it was really, uh, which, so starting off, you know, it's like, I don't know if I can do this sort of thing. You know, I needed to do 50 kilometers a day, which doesn't sound much, but that was taking me eight hours. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> It's it's uh, it was just this immense struggle in my mind, uh, so I just had to try to stick to some sort of process to get through each day. You know, there were also things like clay pans and things to you know where we could have got stuck. You know, this was a supported expedition, but it had to be. There's like five hundred kilometers between where you can get water.
0: And where were they following you? Were were they on the beach with you?
1: Uh, yeah, so they could drive, um, not usually on the beach so much but actually sort of inland, inland slightly because it's still just flat sort of sand with sort of little bushes and things like that so so they could so you know for me cycling along you know it's also dependent on the tide so when the tide was out it was actually I could actually make reasonable progress along the beach maybe go even 10 kilometers per hour or something like that which is if you add it up all day, that's not bad. But then that only lasted that for maybe two hours <laughs> or less. And then the tide starts coming in. And that means it, it pushes up and washes over the soft sand. So I'm just pushed out onto the soft sand, which is really hard. Or sometimes I'm just trying to miss the waves, like the the, the wash of the waves. And so I'm sort of not going in a straight line. I'm trying to the beach is kind of scalloped because of the way uh, the waves wash, the water washes the sand. Uh, and it's changing by the hour, by, you know. So it's just this wild place. I guess that's it, just being in touch with this and having to work. You know, you can't just get on a road and off you go down. You know where it is. You, you can switch off and look at everything around you. I, I'm focusing on every single pedal stroke and I'm constantly trying to work out which is the be- best path. Is it closer to the water? Or is it further up? Or is it, you know, I can't afford the bike to get washed um, then, you know, becoming around and cycling around seals, like they'll just be sleeping out on the beach because, you know, they hunt in the water. And then, but they've got to have a time to rest. So they're often sort of lying out there on the beach, which I used to give a few of them quite a shock. <laughs> um, um, I- I'm
0: sure they had no idea what to even think about you. <laughs> like, what in the world is this? <laughs> <laughs>
1: sort of-
0: Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode.
1: So you should see their fa- little faces go ah, and then they because <laughs> because on land they've got to be watchful for like jackals and things because there's jackals everywhere, and obviously they like to eat the seals as well as the lions uh, and the brown hyenas. So so they do have predators on the on the land as well as in the water. So I guess I'm not wasn't a predator, but I was probably pretty scary all the same. In the water, of course, they have sharks and things to to worry about. So, life's tough if you're a seal. Um, Life
0: is tough if you're a seal. Absolutely, <laughs> life's tough when you're uh, when you're you as well. That sounds difficult being able to or having to constantly pick the line of where the sand is less sandy, essentially, where it's maybe a little more packed down or a little yeah. easier to ride. Yeah. And I'm sure that was were there, were there times that you couldn't ride along the beach at all? Maybe it was rocky. I
1: had to, I had to go around. So I have to find uh, a path around, um, and then there are things like um, uh, where there's lots of ephemeral rivers, so dry rivers that actually flow underground. And they, they, you know, having to cross the river mouths it often meant going up a little gorge or whatever, and around the little gorge and back again. And there's little head, rocky headlands, obviously, you have to go around. You know, um, so it's not 100% on the beach all the time, but it's generally as close as I can to the beach. With the lions, uh, we, we weren't to be protected. It had to be protected by Philip's vehicle and my vehicle. So, so at that point, uh, they had to. I, I had to be on the gravel road for that. So, um, which was that's fine. <laughs> it is what it is. It was only one or two kilometres from the beach anyway. So, so I had to follow that down, and then the other side of Walbus Bay, as I said, that was beach and then then the very high dunes so having to find a path through those and 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 um yeah that was really amazing and to see like the the gemsbok out there you know the the oryx which is namibia's um national animal the oryx and oh my god they're beautiful out there in the sand as well um so yeah just to see nature you often don't get to see much nature but namibia is actually out of all the African countries in particular, is probably uh, best on on the conservation front. And I think it's the only country in Africa where the numbers of black rhino have increased because they're really protected. Uh, and so they have, yeah, they have quite a good uh, conservation. I think that cheetahs as well are well protected. So those animals actually have a chance, which is good. And also with the desert lions, I mean, Obviously, to local people, to the you know those who are herding cattle, a lion or a cheetah is going to be you know, a, a problem because they they're going to take their their livestock. So then they don't like them, of course, and understand why. So it's just trying to keep them apart, really keep the lions and the cheetahs apart from the livestock, uh, to, and that's how they have to protect them. Uh,
0: did Did yeah. you come across any any people out there living or any villages that or, or towns where you were inter- able to interact, and wh- what were some of the reactions you had, if so?
1: Yeah, so away from the coast, so coming up to the start, I'd arranged to, um, to stop a, stop off at a village called Puros, which is about uh, 130, 150 kilometers from the Cunane River mouth. Um, and it's a, a Herero and Himba village, and they herd cattle. They're starting to get a little bit of tourism, very poor. Namibia is not all of Namibia is as poor, but but you know there's 12 different ethnic groups uh, in Namibia, and some of them are are struggling, and these guys having it tough. And I actually have arranged to 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 do a project which didn't come off then, but we'll still do it in 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 the future, which is going to be electrifying that village with solar power to help them out. So um, that's still on the cards. It's just um, so I got to meet the villagers there and. you know, so hopefully I'm going to meet them again. <laughs> um, so that was a really fantastic experience. And the, the Her- Herero women uh, still wear these sort of um, unusual head headgear which represent the the horns of a cattle. So they wear these bright-coloured clothes with these sort of unusual-looking hats. You'll have to look that up too. <laughs> um, and uh, Himba, most of the Himba don't get dressed up with their mud and their hair and everything unless it's for tourists these days, but they do that sometimes for tourists. Uh, then the other, bit sadder situation in Swakopmund, on, on the fringe of that, that town. It's the fourth largest town in Namibia. There was a slum that we got got to see and got to go in there and meet some of the people and hear their stories. And um, uh, it's it's pretty sobering stuff. And to see how they're, they're living. It was just you know just on the edge of the town and sort of 20 years ago, people just coming there for work. There was no housing, no work. housing so it starts as temporary housing and it just grows to a town of about 20,000 people and it's just yeah um, that was a really heart-wrenching experience I would say Uh, yeah Um, I'm still looking to help those guys and they even have problems with a new type of hepatitis hepatitis E and and I I think I might have connected an expert up to go and have a look when COVID's under control there. So. Namibia is actually quite a sparsely populated country. There's only under three million people there in the whole country, and and obviously it, it, the coastline doesn't support a lot. <laughs> um, um, but but inland, you know, there's a lot of desert as well. So there's the Kalahari desert as well. Um, but still, it's still a beautiful place. In some in some ways, it has a bit of a feel of like northwest of Australia. It's it's kind sort of a bit like that. Um, not that you've been there, but, um, yeah, it kind of feels, I love that space and, and yeah, there's something about it. It's, it's a special, really special place.
0: What do you think the place taught you more than anything?
1: The place taught me. So the journey, I look the whole time. I just keep telling myself I'm so lucky, so privileged to be doing this, to be able to pedal my bike down a beach. How did I end up here? Like, it, it, but it was a, it was incredible because of the adventure and 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 the chance to explore stuff. You know, things are changing all the time. The beach is changing all the time. Um, so it, it it taught me how Namibia fits or how that part of the world fits together. But it also certainly mentally that it's really helped me focus and it's given me a lot more confidence to get through the really tough stuff. Um, like I I'm. I'm I'm not showing off or anything, but I think I know how to do that. I think I, I know the mental processes, what's required, how to almost trick my mind into getting to the next next hurdle. Um, it, it helps put life in perspective when you have that, that kind of a challenge. It helps to put everything else back in perspective and what's important and what's you know what's possible, what's really possible. I mean, a lot of people look at this and say, how the hell did you do that? But it's all possible when you take it step by step. And, and it, it's a little bit about what you expect. And yes, I had a time limit. And yes, I had to do it within a certain time to make it work. But, but I had to, to think of it logically and, and think, OK, well, look, if I'm going five kilometers an hour for a while, so be it. I just keep going. It won't last forever. That, that wind won't be that strong all the time. Uh, and you just got to weather the storm and just just hang in there when it's tight, and then just keep looking. There's always something around you that's beautiful, always. So it depends how you look at those sand dunes. You know, those sand dunes could look like a massive wall if you have to cycle it, especially, or they can just look really stunning and beautiful. And if you choose to to take that snapshot and to look look at something really beautiful, you'll always get through.
0: Yeah. Do you struggle with that or does it come pretty naturally to you to, to see things in a positive light or is it a constant battle?
1: No, it's not a battle like, like I I always do that um, I think I'm pretty good at doing that now these days It's it's you know, have to work through things and just try to picture that if it's something that's a really difficult path um, I, I think that you know, I'm quite quick at being able to turn something around and give it a positive spin because there is always a way through. Just to jump a little bit, um, I've just been on another expedition. I'm way through it, but I on day 17, so I've been cycling across Australia from the most easterly tip to the most westerly tip, done a 1,500 kilometres. Day 17, just coming into the desert, my wheels got trapped trapped in a, a a mud pan, but it was a dried mud so there was some some wheel sort of tracks that were very deep and I just it, it was a silly thing but I got I shouldn't have tried to go down that track particular track I should have gone around and I, and and my wheels my pedals got got trapped and I hit the hit the ground which was like concrete and i managed to break my collarbone which was very very painful, and I was kind of like on my own. It is a supported expedition, but I was on my own at the time. Luckily, I had the camera rolling, so we'll have you get to see that one day. Um, and just just me going through the processes of what to do, sitting down for a bit, um, not understanding what's wrong. I thought I might have dislocated my shoulder. I didn't sort of um, hadn't quite worked it out. But then I worked out what I could do. I could rest my bike, my my arm. I couldn't lift my bike. I couldn't sort of. I could rest it on the seat, but then I realised if I could just rest it on the hand, handlebars my hand, and I actually cycled for two kilometres. I thought it was about four, but uh, with with a broken collarbone to find my team, sort of thing. So it's amazing what you can do. And then and then basically by when you realised what it was, I, I had to come face to face at that time with having to stop the expedition, and, but very quickly I was able to turn it around and, okay, okay this is now, you know, this, my recovery is part of the story. So once I understood <clears throat> what was wrong with my, my arm and then, you know, it was a, quite a process to get to a hospital. Uh, the, um, firstly, you know, we're in the, on, the, on the edge of a desert, so it was 90 kilo- kilometres back to the nearest town. Uh, the Royal Flying Doctors, which we have in Australia, uh, were booked, but they couldn't they couldn't pick me up because they had sort of life threatening uh, accidents to attend to, and so I had to wait there overnight, and then then we had to drive down another 330 kilometres to Broken Hill, where there's a hospital. Once I we saw the what the break was, and and I was able to to phone. I have sort of very good uh, medical contacts in Melbourne, so I was able to phone up a surgeon and he was able to reassure me and then I thought okay okay I've got eight weeks so this is this is it this is still part of the story it's still the recovery of my shoulder is a part of the story and and I just have to treat it that way so I very quickly turned that around and yes it's painful and it's not what I was planning but but there's always a way to turn it into part of the challenge and 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 get through There'll be a way, you know, hopefully in six weeks' time I'll be back out there or so. We don't know for sure, but but roughly that amount of time. Very luckily the filmmakers that were with me and so on are all, and the team are committed to coming back, which is, I'm very, very fortunate because, because it's not just me that has to be considered here. My work can hold on. So so let's get this shoulder better, and everyone's waiting for it to get better. <laughs> so, um, but that—that's about a positive. Yeah, just 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 being able to turn stuff around. Even that—that's serious adversity. That's serious pain. But actually, I think I do have the ability to step back, put the perspective on it, and work out how to get better. There's no good just dwelling on what it is. You know, the best way to get better is to actually imagine that path keep the options over it's still gotta be adaptable but 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 to imagine that path and and I, I guess I'm quite goal driven in that respect. You know, I, I like things to work towards. I would get a bit lost if I didn't. I'm not one of those adventurers who just goes out there with no aims or anything. I, I, I do need, you know, solid things to, to work towards
0: um for sure. Well well tell us about, you know, you've got you've got the uh, Antarctica Antarctica expedition out there somewhere you you're making that happen and, and to finish this uh, Australian expedition is there is there any other major continent or or experience that's on your radar, radar that you'd really like to achieve
1: Uh yeah there are a few um um actually just before covid I was finishing off the series of the doing a co- uh, expedition in each continent and I was in South America and I'd gone out there and I'd cycled through Especially a, a journey through the Andes because I was doing altitude training for Antarctica as well as obviously being a, a worthwhile expedition. And this one was kind of definitely altitude. So, through southern Peru, I was in Bolivia. The idea was to continue down through Bolivia. I was, was going to cycle up some of the world's highest cyclable uh, paths, um, some not that cyclable, but the idea was to to, to, to finish on Hoyas del Salado, which is the world's. Highest volcano and the second highest mountain in the Americas, um, just under seven thousand meters there, uh, on the border between Chile and Argentina. So, I um, I was in Bolivia when it became untenable to continue travelling, and um, and Argentina and Chile just closed their borders, and so it's time to cut now. So, I managed to get the last commercial flight out of Bolivia. So um i'd love to be able to finish that one off there's six weeks still left of that so sometime i'd like to be able to finish that one off um i have i definitely have my eyes on the sahara um i have something something very worthwhile there that's it's more about risk mitigation um at the moment with that one. Oh, look i'm I've-, I've got a few
0: <laughs> wow well kate i i think you could come on again at any time and talk about any of these experiences honestly we could dive into i mean everything the... you, you you have books worth of literally books worth of information and experiences you've seen and stories you, you you'd be able to tell so um thank you for sharing some about the um the namibian coast the skeleton coast and about some of your adventures coming up uh if if you could if if things went to plan um just how you wanted when when would you do the antarctic experience
1: well, look, it's not likely to be this November, December, January, because we don't even know if we're gonna be able to leave right. the country. We're focusing on uh, November twenty where are we? November twenty-two would be the middle of November to start then, December, January. So it's it's a year and a half away. Um that that's that's the nearest. I'm just but it said, you know, if I can find the sponsors right now. Then we can make something really good with all the marketing and and you know now i've got this path with this first tv series diamonds in the sand which is about the skeleton coast expedition so that's i'm really proud of that because that's it's one thing to do an expedition it's another to capture it properly on film and then it's another to make we've made a film and then to make a series out of that and what i've learned about filmmaking in that process or storytelling uh you know that goes into the next thing so um so I've got that one out we're trying to we're we're filming this Australian expedition making you know so there's a lot of filmmaking going on so with um Antarctica now we're certainly in a position with the filmmakers etc to also make something really worthwhile so for sponsors it's not just supporting me it's that's the first thing but um obviously it's they can get a lot of value out of it through what we can create. You know, um, the current series, I think, is already in front of more than 100 million people. So for sponsors, that should be really worthwhile. Um, um, So – and hopefully it'll be sold to to more (laughs) as as well. So there's that. um, um, And obviously with the education program, I've got something working with Dulwich Colleges, which is like it's about 10,000 kids. So – there's a lot of other different values out of that expedition as well as you no. Know, so if anyone is looking to sponsor, um, give me a call. <laughs> Contact me. There you um, go. Would, yeah.
0: There you go. Wonderful. Well, Kate, thank you for joining us again on the Adventure Sports Podcast. We'll have to catch up in a couple years, <laughs> I guess. Is the <laughs> it, we'll just keep it every few years. We'll just we'll just book you in to have you on um yeah and where, where can folks find you i've got your website and i've got the social media is there anywhere else uh
1: no i mean i mean if you use my website you, you can go kateleaming.com and breaking the cycle.education go to the same place um kateleaming.com is a bit easier to remember that's all so you, you can see you can catch up with all of the expeditions on there um you can contact me through that um and as you say facebook uh twitter uh instagram i'm on all of those so um that's the best way to get in touch
0: wonderful well thank you again and uh yeah have a wonderful day and uh we'll talk soon
1: thanks mason lovely to talk with you
0: first of all